Today's podcast is sponsored by Mint Mobile. Cut your new wireless plan to just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free. Go to mintmobile.com slash gold. Good evening, everybody. Let me apologize in advance in case I cough a lot during this podcast. I still have not been able to shake this cough. You know, I, I, I got sick a little bit on my last trip to Europe and hopefully I get rid of it because I'm going back to Europe again in in six days and uh, I really don't want to be uh, traveling uh, with a cough so hopefully it goes away um, by then also just to let everybody know I know I haven't been doing the Q&A's I'm going to do one today uh, hopefully I get through it so if you're not a premium member and you want to take part in this evening's Q&A you can you know, sign up at shiftradio.com slash premium. If you're already signed up, then make sure and uh, stick around because as soon as I finish this podcast, I'm going to be doing the Q&A. Now, first of all, over this three-day holiday weekend, the national debt finally shot above $32 trillion dollars. Now, at the moment, there is no ceiling on this debt. The sky is the limit because they suspended the ceiling, at least until after the 2024 presidential election. So who knows how high this number is going to be. But what's really significant, it's not just the size of the debt, but what's really growing exponentially is the interest payments on the debt, which are over 600 billion, according to this nationaldebtclock.org. I have a feeling that it's actually more than that. Because if you look at and five uh, billion, that still represents less than 2% interest on the $32 trillion national debt. Now I know a lot of that debt was financed at very, very low rates, but every month, that super low uh, uh, yielding paper matures and it has to be replaced with 5%. And just think about what will happen. Let's say interest rates just stay around 5%. I think they're, they're headed higher, even if they dip a little bit first. I think 5% is gonna look low at some point, but let's just say rates stay around 5%. The national debt is gonna be 40 trillion in a few more years, right? Not that many. At 5%, because by the time the national debt is 40 trillion, the, you know, the whole thing would have rolled over. There'll be no more of that, you know, 25 basis point debt on the Fed's balance sheet or on the, the government's balance sheet anymore. It'll all be gone. So if you figure the government ends up paying 5% on a $40 trillion national debt, that's $2 trillion a year in interest. That is more than triple the current 600 billion. That's more than we spend on Medicaid right now. That's more than we spend on Social Security. It's actually about what we spend on Social Security and national defense combined. And that's just interest. That's two trillion. But another very uh, troubling fact should be that even if 
we could balance the budget without interest, meaning that the government collected enough in taxes to pay its bills, not counting interest. Even if the government could do that, we would still have a deficit of $2 trillion a year, which it can't. If you look right now, federal tax revenue is about $4.7 trillion. Spending is $6.3 trillion. Even if you subtract the $600 billion for interest on the national debt, you still have an operating deficit of a trillion dollars. Even if there was no national debt and no interest to pay, we still have a trillion dollar deficit, budget deficit every year, adding to the national debt. So that means if the government can maintain that $1 trillion deficit, which I doubt it can do, it's about to skyrocket as the economy you know, collapses into recession, but or a deeper recession than what we got now. But even if we can maintain that, that means when interest on the debt is $2 trillion, the annual budget deficits will be $3 trillion a year. I mean, this is, you know, going ballistic. Clearly, an accident is about to happen. We, we, we cannot continue this. And in fact, if you look at the rate in which we are currently racking up debt, when Biden took office, uh, about two and a half years ago. Since then, the national debt is up $4.25 trillion in two and a half years. But it's now going to accelerate at a rapid pace. Now, Donald Trump currently holds the record for the most debt accumulated in a single presidential term, right? He didn't accumulate the most debt of any president. That dubious distinction goes to Barack Obama. But Barack Obama served two terms. Trump only had one. Now, of course, um, Barack Obama broke the record that was set by George W. Bush, who had the two terms before him. He had the record for the most debt. I mean, he doubled the debt and then a Biden doubled the debt again. Trump wasn't in office long enough to fully double the debt, but he did set a record for the most debt in a single term. I think Biden can beat that. I think that Biden in his first term, and hopefully it's his last term and only term, but in this term, based on what I think is going to happen to the deficit in the next year and a half, uh, and interest on the debt, he is going to break the Trump record, which is very significant because remember, Trump's deficits were heavily skewed in his last year based on all the stimulus from uh, you know COVID, all of the um, PPP money and all those stimulus checks caused the deficit to skyrocket in 2020. And so Biden you know, didn't have that. Yet he still is likely to preside over a bigger increase in the national debt than Trump. And by the way, I want to just mention something without actually mentioning it, because, you know, I've heard that when you talk about this stuff, let's say on YouTube, and my podcasts are on YouTube, there's some kind of 
algorithms that are, you know, kind of monitoring YouTube. And when they, when they, you know, they pick up these keywords, they kind of demonetize your video or they try to suppress its views. And so I don't want to, you know, touch off any hot buttons, but, you know, there was a news story and a lot of people might not have heard it because it didn't get a lot of coverage. But when that certain, you know, disease hit in 2020, that, that caused the big increase in the deficit. There were a lot of people that were claiming that that certain uh, disease actually got started in a certain lab in a certain country where they were doing certain kinds of research. And so it was kind of a man-made thing. And uh, when those theories were first uh, you know, promoted, uh, it was, fake news, disinformation, conspiracy theory. But now it seems like that, you know, conspiracy theory turns out to have been correct. But even though we now know it's correct, you still can't talk about it because the powers that be don't want to acknowledge the mistakes that they made. But apparently not, not only the first person who got that disease, patient zero, but the second and third person who got that disease all worked in that lab in that country where supposedly the disease didn't emanate except all the initial cases of that disease were in that exact lab in that exact country. So, you know, I thought that was an interesting piece of news that I don't want to technically talk about, but I, I just kind of got off track. I was talking about the, uh, the deficits uh, and that even though um, Biden didn't have to deal with that situation. He still is going to preside over a, a bigger increase in the debt than, than, than Trump did. And so this is a fiscal uh, powder keg. All it needs is a fuse and it's going to go off. And I think it's got to be this next downturn that is that is coming. I mean, the global economy, everybody is feeling the impact of rising interest rates. Right? We're in like the lull before the storm, although there was news over the weekend out of China. You know, the Chinese economy growth is slowing. Unemployment is picking up. In fact, they even had some rate cuts already in China right? uh, to try to stimulate the economy. Right? This, this is just the beginning. But these problems are worldwide because of you know, 12 years of artificially low interest rates and the malinvestments and bubbles and debt that were a byproduct of that era. Uh, as rates have been allowed to rise, uh, all of those mistakes are rising to the surface and we're just beginning to experience the consequences. There is another leg coming very quickly in the financial crisis here in the United States, in the banking crisis. Now, you know, you wouldn't know it by looking at the stock market, right? I mean, yeah, the Dow was down a couple hundred points today, maybe 250, but, you know, NVIDIA made a new high, right? So, hey, everything is great. Uh, you know, and the tech stocks, the NASDAQ was down a little bit today, but not as much as the broader market because people are still piling into these stocks as if everything was great. But, everything isn't even close to being great. And I think what's gonna happen as we 
see the weakness in the economy and at the same time, an uptick in inflation, which is very close around the corner, looking at various prices, you can see that that curve is bending up as the economy is, is headed down. That is going to put enormous pressure on the deficits of the United States and more downward pressure on the dollar. You know, the dollar to me is still looking very weak. Uh, it's not rallying uh, on all this talk of, you know, tight money and, and an aggressive Fed. The dollar is not getting a boost. But all this stuff, I think, is going to be a perfect storm to really uh, blow up that, that, that fiscal time bomb that is so apparent. And when you look at what just happened with, with the deficit and the suspension of the debt ceiling, the creditors are going to are figuring this out. The de-dollarization is not just about the sanctions uh, on, uh, on, on Russia. Uh, it's also about the enormity of the debt and the fact that our creditors want out. They don't want to be aboard this ship when it sinks. Anyway, we got a quick commercial break. We'll be right back, so don't go anywhere. We all know that inflation is running out of control, and despite what the government, the Federal Reserve are saying, it's going to get a lot worse. We can't stop the inflation from getting worse, but there are things that we can do to help minimize the effect it has on our lives. One way is through making investments that protect you from inflation. The other way is looking for clever ways to cut costs wherever you can. And one of the easiest is by switching your wireless service to Mint Mobile. As the first company to sell premium wireless service online only, Mint Mobile lets you order from home and save a ton with phone plans starting at just 15 bucks a month. So if you're looking for extra savings right now, and who isn't, Mint Mobile offers premium wireless service for just 15 bucks a month. By going online only and eliminating the traditional costs of retail, Mint Mobile passes significant savings to you. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Every plan comes with 5 gigabytes of 5G plus 4G LTE per month. Data speeds are reduced after 5Gs, but data is unlimited. Free international calls to Mexico and Canada, free mobile hotspots, free calling and texts. Use your own phone with any mid-mobile plan. Keep your same phone number along with all your existing contacts. Switch to mid-mobile and get premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month. Long story short, Mint Mobile offers awesome wireless service at the lowest monthly price, period. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to midmobile.com gold. That's midmobile.com slash gold. Cut your wireless bill to just 15 bucks a month at midmobile.com slash gold. Before the break, I was talking again about the pickup in inflation. And I read this article today. It was up on the Zero Hedge website that the cost of logistics in the United States increased by 20% last year to a record $2.3 trillion spent on logistics. That's just over 9% of GDP. That is a very high number. Basically, logistics is the cost of transporting all the goods around the country. And the reason that logistic costs are rising so much is because the price is going up so much. Everything costs more. The shipping, the storage, the insurance, 
A lot of that is interest rates. A lot of that is fuel costs, labor costs. But again, one of the reasons that logistics are so expensive is because everything is imported. We have to bring all this stuff in uh, from Asia. It arrives at ports on the coast, and then it has to be redistributed throughout all the United States. We just don't have our own factories uh, that are producing stuff closer to where it's getting consumed. And now we have so many people who are having their items hand delivered, you know, to their home. So, you know, instead of, let's say, going to a supermarket and buying groceries, the groceries are just delivered uh, to everybody's house. I know that because groceries are constantly delivered to my house. I've, when I grew up, that didn't happen. My mother needed groceries. She went to the grocery store and bought them. Now my wife just orders them on Amazon and they show up from Whole Foods. We don't go anywhere, right? So there's a, a much bigger transportation cost uh, involved in, in sending all this stuff out the way it is. Yeah, I mean, we're not driving to the store, so that cuts down that. But for the stores, having to pack everything up, ship it out, I mean, it, it, you know, and all the extra packaging, it seems like it's a lot more work. And of course, a lot of the stuff uh, that is shipped, you know, on Amazon, just individual things that you used to buy in bulk. I mean, we get packages that come and there's just one item in there. I mean, sometimes there's, you know, there's more cardboard than there is product uh, because stuff sometimes you order it one at a time and they'll ship it out. You know, whereas if you used to go to the store, you would go and you'd buy all the items on one trip. You wouldn't just order them individually. You didn't go to the store just to get one thing. You kind of waited until you had a lot of things. But, you know, you got Amazon Prime. Everything is free. You can just order batteries, you know, just a set of them, you know, and they'll, they'll ship it out to you all by itself. Uh, so it's a tremendous cost involved in distributing all this stuff, which is, you know, weighing heavily on the GDP. But this is just an example of what we're getting. Because 20%. I mean, that is more than double the official inflation rate in the United States. And I would think that these increasing transportation costs are more reflective of what was actually happening to prices, because just about everything we buy has to be shipped. And, you know, a 20 percent increase in those costs, you know, doesn't really jive with the low number, not low, but much lower number, what, 8%, whatever, that we were getting from the government. That 20% is much closer. And that's a real cost, right? That's not a makeup cost where the government just, you know, manufactures it through a rigged CPI. That's an actual cost that they they weren't able to, to lie about. Anyway, though, getting back to the markets, because I mentioned that the tech stocks were, you know, relatively strong today. Well, they hammered the gold mining stocks. You know, a lot of times when stocks go down, people say, hey, I never talk about them when they go down. You know, I like to talk about them more when they go down because it's a better buying opportunity when they go down. But they hammered the gold stocks today about 4% or so. Gold was down about 15 to 20 bucks, someone there. I'm, I'm looking at it right now, uh, 9.20 in the evening, uh, East Coast time, gold's about $1,937 an ounce. You know, one of the catalysts for this morning's sell-off, although gold was already down, and then it just went down more, 
I think were the data that came out at 8.30 a.m. on housing starts and permits, which was much, much stronger than had been anticipated. In fact, the consensus for starts was 1.4 million and we got 1.631 million. That was a big number. The upper end of the range was 1.45 million. So I don't know where this number came from. My guess is they're gonna revise it away, but the markets reacted to it. In fact, they actually downwardly revised the previous month from 140 to 1.34 million. These are you know annualized numbers. So that was a big downward revision in, in, uh, in April. So they'll probably have another big downward revision in May. We'll have to wait. But also the permit numbers were also big, not as big a, a beat as the starts, but they were looking for 1.433 million and we got 1.491 million. So I think this got people thinking, oh, you know, the economy is stronger. So the Fed's going to have to be higher for longer. I mean, the same old song. But again, there are computers that are trading this gold market. And I think they automatically react. Like they're, they're, they're pre-programmed to look for this number. And if this number is above a certain percent, above estimates, they just automatically sell gold, right? I mean, they would buy it, I guess, if the numbers were really weak. Uh, but they just already have these things programmed in. And so there's so much noise in the market that they're not really reflecting the reality of what is the perfect environment for the price of gold. Gold should be much higher. Gold stocks should be even more significantly higher right now than gold. I think the mining stocks are even more underpriced than the metal itself. And again, that just reflects the sentiment that people have for the future price of gold. I don't know how long uh, this is going to last. I mean, how much longer, uh, you know, gold could be in this situation where it doesn't explode, where the, the traders haven't, you know, put the pieces of the puzzle together. But just take advantage of it, uh, you know, during this uh, time period where, where they haven't. But, you know, obviously different situation going on in fool's gold. We have had an explosive rally in Bitcoin. In fact, it's exploding even more as I'm doing this podcast. It's getting close to 29,000 right now. In fact, the high uh, since I've been doing the podcast, it got above 29,000. I'm looking at um, bitstamp.net. Uh, and within the last five minutes, Bitcoin peaked its head above 29,000. It was below 25,000 when it sold off at its low last week. So that is a very significant rally off of that low. There have been two catalysts for this rise. The first one uh, was the fact that, that, that BlackRock, and I, I think it was BlackRock and not Blackstone. I keep mixing these guys up, but you know, BlackRock had announced that it was filing for a Bitcoin ETF. Now, I don't know what makes them think that they're going to have any more luck uh, than Grayscale or anybody else who has been trying to get a Bitcoin ETF in the U.S. But in any event, they filed for one. And that caused the initial rally of Bitcoin from, you know, low 25,000 up to 26, 27,000 in that area. Today's rally was sparked by more news 
that I think Citadel is partnering uh, with a couple of other Wall Street firms, uh, maybe Fidelity, I forget, uh, Schwab or somebody, a couple of firms, and they're going to be creating a new uh, crypto exchange. It's going to be a non-custodial exchange. So they're not going to hold custody of your tokens, you know, like uh, FTX did, right? Or like, like Coinbase does. You don't, they, you don't have a wallet with them. They're just going to have a trading facility where they're going to affect trades. And apparently they're going to limit the cryptos that can be traded on this new exchange to those that they're certain are not securities. Of course, there is no certainty because the SEC can decide for whatever reason to, to claim anything as a security. But right now they claim that, well, Bitcoin is not, Ether is not, uh, Litecoin or Bitcoin Cash. There's a few of these uh, cryptos that this new exchange is going to allow to trade. But the other thing about this new exchange is it's not really a retail exchange. It's aimed at brokerage firms. So that if a brokerage firm like, you know, your Pacific Capital, it's not your Pacific Capital anymore, it's uh, Alliance Global Partners. But let's say if a client of Alliance Global Partners wanted to trade Bitcoin in their account, what they're saying is Alliance Global Partners could route those orders through this new exchange so that we could buy or sell Bitcoin or Ether on behalf of a customer. And and then have the the token in that brokerage account or some other custodian that would reflect it in the brokerage account. And based on this, right, all this excitement around new ways to gamble on Bitcoin, you've got this big run up in, in price. But, you know, I think that they are overestimating, meaning Citadel and this group, the demand to trade Bitcoin through brokerage accounts. I, I don't think there's going to be anywhere near the demand that they anticipate. Uh, a, there's no way that full service brokerage firms are ever going to allow their reps to solicit any crypto. It's just never going to happen. It's just not worth it as far as the risk of being sued by customers who lose money. I mean, just, I don't think uh, full service firms want any part of this. Speaking from somebody who's, you know, been involved in that for almost my entire uh, uh, business career. So I think it's simply going to be the self-directed accounts that will be allowed to be trading crypto. And there again, I don't think there's going to be a lot of demand. I mean, I think most people who want crypto don't want to do it through their brokerage account. They, they just want to have their own wallet and self-custody their crypto. And in fact, to the extent that you can actually use crypto as a payment methodism method, even though very few people use it for that, you can't use it for that at all. If you have it in your brokerage account, it's not even possible. You know, yes, you could use it if you have it in your own wallet. It's, it's, you know, a clumsy, expensive, slow uh, way to pay for things, but at least in theory it's possible. But if you have it tied up in your brokerage account, you, you know, you lose that. And so the only people who are going to really want to trade it in brokerage accounts are, are people who just, you know, want to gamble in it. And I just don't think there's going to be uh, as big a, you know, uh, market for that. But 
the reason that Citadel wants in on it is because they want to make money. It's not because they think that Bitcoin is a good investment or you know they want to recommend it. They just want to book the bets. They just see that there's gambling and you know they want a piece of the action. They see that FTX has crashed, right? Now Coinbase is under investigation by the uh, SEC. So is uh, Binance. And, and so they think, okay, all these other companies are going out of business. Let's set up shop. There's an opportunity here. We could pick up this business because if these other uh, exchanges are going down, well, there's an opportunity here to make some money because now, you know, we could cash in uh, on, on that action. We could book these bets because the other bookies are going out of business. Well, I just don't think there's going to be enough gamblers left. I, I think they're going to lose money. Yeah, they're making money now. You know, Bitcoin, again, almost 29,000, getting close to 30,000. Uh, but this is just another opportunity to sell. Just because there are new ways to gamble on Bitcoin doesn't mean that Bitcoin itself has any real value. Uh, it doesn't. Yes, people are going to say, oh, Peter's a hypocrite because you, you put a, an ordinal described on a Satoshi. Yeah, I did that. Right. <laughs> I don't know how much value uh, those Satoshis have because I can put an ordinal there. You know, <laughs> I mean, maybe maybe that value is somewhat above zero, but it, it, it may ultimately end up being a very inefficient way of authenticating ownership of something real. I mean, you may be able to do that uh, with something that's a lot more efficient uh, uh, than Bitcoin. But I think this rally is sucker rally. And it's interesting that you've got Bitcoin going up at the same time that you have uh, gold going down. You know, I had actually expected the reverse to happen. I thought that gold would probably go up and Bitcoin would go down. Instead, we're seeing the opposite. But I don't think this will this will last. It's I think it's a head fake. And so it is an opportunity for you hodlers out there. You can sell some Bitcoin and and, and buy some gold. Now, I want to uh, talk a little bit about the, uh, the the Juneteenth holiday that we just had. Now, I don't want to talk much about it because I did an excellent podcast on this holiday two years ago uh, when it uh, first became a holiday. And I did it on a special uh, YouTube video and... It, it, it wasn't a sponsored video because I didn't want to potentially piss off any of my advertisers, you know, who, you know, because, you know, it's a touchy subject, right? When you talk about uh, that, um, that thing. So I'm, I'm looking now, I, I had uh, saved it. I'm trying to find the podcast number. So I'm searching on YouTube. To give you guys, yeah, it's called Juneteenth is only the beginning. It's episode 705 of, uh, of my podcast. So give it a listen. I mean, it's got 77,000 views on YouTube two years ago. And that was a decent number of views back then. I wasn't doing the video at the time. I'm getting more people watching now that I'm doing, uh, doing the video. But if you missed that podcast... Give it a listen sometime over the next couple of days because I made some good points 
uh, about about the holiday. But I wanted to mention one thing because I was reading, you know, some articles about this. There was like a you know a Twitter war going on about the United States and slavery, and a lot of people are under the false impression, due to revisionist history, that America was like, you know, last to the you know abolishing slavery party that we were dragging our feet, and every other country abolished slavery, and we were like one of the last to do it, and that's just not true. I mean. Americans were leading the charge to abolish slavery. I mean, even going back to before the birth of the nation, while we were still colonies, there was a lot of movement. Uh, In fact, the state of Vermont, and before it was a state, it was just a territory, abolished slavery in 1777. So that was before uh, we had the United States. It was a territory. And they abolished slavery. And of course, you know, a lot of uh, the delegates to the uh, the convention that, that voted for independence, a lot of those guys would have liked to have abolished slavery. They just didn't have enough support because they needed the support of the Southern states and slavery was important to the Southern states. And so uh, in order to have a unified uh, declaration of independence from, from the crown, uh, they had to put those anti-slavery concerns on the back burner. But that doesn't mean they didn't have them because they did. But also I mentioned that Vermont abolished slavery in 1777, but Pennsylvania did it in 1780. New Hampshire and Massachusetts in 1783. Connecticut, my state that I'm in now, and Rhode Island in 1784. New Jersey in 1804, and New York in 1817. Britain didn't abolish slavery until 1833. And all these people on Twitter are saying, oh, Great Britain was 1833, and we waited until 1863 or 1865. That's the entire United States. That's not individual states. Because back in those days, the states had a lot more sovereignty than they do today. We really were united nation states, united under a common federal government, but the state government was far more important. In fact, most people back then identified with their state more than the United States. You know, if you were... Uh, traveling in Europe or you were in Europe and you met an American traveling and you struck off a conversation and you said, hey, where are you from? That American would say, you know, I'm from Rhode Island. You know, I'm from Virginia, right? Georgia, whatever. I mean, they would say what state they were from. They wouldn't say I'm from America, the United States. But today, of course, you know, nobody really mentions what state they live in. I'm, I'm American. I'm from America because the the nature of the country is is very different. And so it was very significant that you had individual states abolishing slavery. I mean, when America was first formed, it was a little bit more like the European Union. Yes, if you're French, if you're Italian, if you're German, you're in the EU, 
but you still identify more with your country than the European Union. And that was what it was like prior to the Civil War. And, and so to ignore the fact that uh, these states were leading the charge in abolishing slavery. You know, France didn't abolish it until 1848. You know, what took them so long, right? Instead of beating up on America, you know, yes, we can be ashamed of the fact that we had slavery at all, but we were among the leaders in getting rid of it. Yes, we didn't get rid of it in all the states, right? Until after the Civil War. But still, I mean, think about all the Americans who gave their lives to help bring about an end to slavery. You know, I mentioned in another podcast, more Americans died in that war uh, than in all the other wars that we fought combined. So we paid a huge price to get rid of slavery. It wasn't like it went away easy, but we were leading the path. And by the way, you know, a lot of people want to, you know, beat up on Thomas Jefferson because he owned slaves. I mean, he was one of the guys that wanted to get rid of slavery, but he actually abolished the slave trade. I think it was a few weeks before uh, Great Britain did. I think it was in 1807 when England, you know, you know, abolished or made illegal the North, the, the North Atlantic slave trade. But before Great Britain did that, President Jefferson made it illegal to import slaves into any port in the United States. Now, of course, it went on illegally, right? I mean, you know, but it was against the law, right? Now, you know, it's hard for the government to prevent uh, stuff from happening, right? I mean, all kinds of stuff is illegal and it still happens, but it is still significant that this happened. So instead of people wanting to criticize uh, guys like Thomas Jefferson, they can at least look back at the major contributions that they made in helping to bring about uh, the end of slavery and, and and not try to unnecessarily beat up on the United States. I mean, look, I'd beat up on America for a lot of things these days, because unfortunately we're doing a lot of stuff wrong. Uh, but I want to defend the country when uh, defense is warranted. And these are unwarranted attacks on the history of the United States and trying to, you know, paint us all with this slavery brush as if, you know, that's what defines America. Is, is, is slavery. It wasn't. And what built America was not slavery or slaves. What built America was freedom. It was the individual liberty, limited government. Slavery was actually a hindrance. I think America would have thrived even more had we ended slavery sooner rather than later. Certainly had we not have to waste all those resources not to mention the human lives on a war. I mean, that was a significant negative impact on our economy, having to fight that war. Uh, and so had we been able to abolish slavery in 1776, when we declared our independence, I think the country would be far more prosperous today than it is. And again, not that I'm, you know, trying to, you know, blame the slaves. Of course, not, not, it's not their fault that they were slaves at all. I'm just saying that it would have been better if they were working uh, for wages, if they had the incentives that come with uh, a job and being able to own the fruits of your labor. I think the South would have been a lot more prosperous had they recognized 
that sooner. That's not, you know, that's one of the reasons that the North became so much more wealthy than the South was because they weren't dependent on slave labor. Uh, they were, you know, far more of a, a free market in labor. And so they developed industries uh, much more efficiently than in, than in the South. Last and definitely least, I wanted to talk about Hunter Biden, although I'm not even sure if I can say that name without the, the YouTube uh, police, uh, you know, trying to suppress my views. But the news came out today. After all this investigation and after all the dirt, in fact, recently, um, the stuff that's come out is even worse. Now, the numbers keep going up 20 million, 30 million. This is how much money uh, the Biden family uh, was paid to basically sell out the country and peddle influence. I mean, this is borderline treason, right? I mean, it, it, this is big stuff. It's not just, you know, money laundering or wire fraud or racketeering or whatever charges that you could throw on them. I mean, to me, if you are an elected official, especially the vice president of the United States, if you're taking money from foreigners in order to pursue a foreign interest at the expense of a domestic interest, I mean, isn't that treason? I mean, I mean, you're not like giving them our launch codes or something. It's not like in a war, but you're basically selling out your country for money. I mean, I don't think you should, you know, even take bribes from Americans, right? But you certainly shouldn't take bribes, you know, from the Chinese or from the Ukrainians. That's that's got to be even worse, right? I mean, they're both bad, but but come on, when you're talking about the scale of it, the Bidens were basically an organized crime family, is what they were, and the Godfather, you know, was you know was Don Joe Biden, right? The big guy, right? It seems pretty obvious that this is the case, and Hunter Biden was deep in this. I mean, he was really. Uh, you know, the, the, the main uh, vehicle through which all this money was flowing. And he set up all these shell companies. What was it, 15 or 20 companies that do absolutely nothing but collect all the money that the, that the Biden family was being, you know, collecting in bribes in order to advance the interests of foreign nationals, foreign companies, whatever they were. And so... After this whole investigation, they finally charge Hunter Biden with basically nothing. They charge him with a couple of misdemeanors related to income taxes. Now, I don't even know if he paid any income taxes on all his bribe money. I mean, I don't know. Maybe he, he declared that money, but I don't know, you know how he identified it. Like, what did he do to earn all that money? Because he doesn't apparently have any skills. I was watching on Tucker Carlson. Apparently, he, he's, he fancies himself a bit of an artist. His art didn't look that great, but apparently the paintings are selling for, you know, $50,000, $200,000 a pop. You know, I wonder what they're buying when they're giving Hunter Biden all that money for his paintings because it's probably not art. But, um, you know, they slapped him on the wrist with a couple of misdemeanors. I'm not even sure, like, he filed his returns late or what he did. Uh, but you know, it's no big deal. And then he got some kind of gun charge. Apparently he was 
you know, under the, he was using drugs or something and, you know, and he applied for a gun permit and lied about the fact that he was on drugs. And so he got a gun that he wasn't supposed to get. Uh, and so, but apparently there's like no big deal. He's not going to jail at all. It's, you know, kind of like a slap on the wrist. And now I guess that's it. And, you know, what bothers me more about this thing, it's not that, you know, he's, you know, he got this sweetheart deal. I, you know, I mean, whatever he did with his income taxes, you know, if he filed his returns late, I mean, that, I mean, that's not the big deal. The big deal is that this is all they're focusing on. The investigation is over. Like Hunter Biden can go on his way. They're not looking into any of this other stuff. All this new evidence that has just come to light about all the bribes that he took that are far more important than buying that gun or whether or not he, he was late on filing his tax returns. This big stuff is now getting completely swept under the rug. They're basically saying, okay, we're done with Hunter now. We have nothing to investigate him for. We've wrapped this thing up. Uh, we're moving on. And of course, if they're no longer investigating Hunter, well, that means they're no longer investigating the big guy or not like they were ever investigating the big guy. They're not going to investigate him at all because if you're not going after Hunter, well, then you're not going to go after Biden, you know, the big guy, because unless you show that Hunter Biden uh, was taking bribes, then you can't show that Joe was taking them because he was getting the money from Hunter. So basically the investigation is over. And, you know, this, you know, in sharp comparison to what the Justice Department is doing with Donald Trump, where they're trying to get like, I don't know, 100 years in jail because he took these documents to Mar-a-Lago, right? What the Bidens did is so much worse. Even if what Trump did, he shouldn't have done. And if Hillary did it and uh, Pence did it, and who knows how many uh, people have done exactly what Trump has done and it was no big deal. But even if that was wrong, it pales in comparison to what the Bidens have done and they get away with it completely. So talk about, you know, a two-tiered justice system. You know, the Biden administration wants to make a big deal when they go after Trump by saying, oh, you see, nobody's above the law. See, we're going after everybody, even presidents of the United States. Oh, yeah? Well, you're not going after the city president of the United States because he, he broke the law even more as did his kid, right? So there are people who are above the law, right? They're just, you know, they're, they're, they're making the laws. They're, they're in the White House. So it, it is a two-seared system. It's complete hypocrisy and nothing uh, uh, evidences that more than the contrast between how Trump is being treated and how the Bidens are being treated, in particular now Hunter and of course, uh, his father. Anyway, that's it for today's podcast. Again, I'm going to do a Q&A immediately following today's podcast. So those of you who are premium members, stick around. If you're not a premium member, you probably got a couple of minutes to sign up at shiftradio.com slash premium. Bye for now.